I'm sure we've all had one of those dreams, usually a bad dream, but I suppose there are good dreams too that can be this way, where it takes a few minutes to snap out of them when you wake up. The dream is so real, so vivid, so bizarre usually, but somehow in a dream way where it feels totally plausible when you're in it, and you wake up, but you still feel like you're in the dream. And then it's almost like one by one, the pieces start falling into place. It's quiet and dark. I can feel the sheets on top of me and the mattress beneath me. I can open my eyes and see my window, the lamp next to the bed, the door. But even after enough pieces are in place where if you were thinking straight, you would see that, oh, I'm definitely awake now, in my bedroom, in the middle of the night. Even so, your brain doesn't quite accept the reality. It still feels like you're in the dream, even if the real world is right here, plain to see. Eventually, though, enough pieces fall into place that your brain, no matter how trapped in that dream state it was to begin with, just has to accept the reality. <laughs> I'm okay. It's the middle of the night. It was all a dream. This is the reality in front of me right now. And then a few minutes later, you look back and it's completely baffling that you were ever in doubt in the first place. Like, how did I think I was still being chased or was falling or whatever when I was clearly lying still in a dark bedroom? But in the moment, it's not clear at all. You have to force yourself to look at the evidence that's all around you, the signs that tell you without question what is real, even if it takes some noticing, to see what was there all along. I say all this because it's exactly what Paul is trying to do in many of his letters. He's trying to point out to these fledgling Christian communities the signs that are all around them, but that take some noticing. We've already seen an example of this in Romans, where Paul returns again and again to Jesus' resurrection. This isn't just some abstract theological doctrine for Paul. His logic is, if Jesus has been raised, then the new age is here. See, Jewish thought of Paul's day broke the world into two distinct eras, kind of like how the time of the dinosaurs has the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous periods. For Jews at the time, there was the current age, characterized by, well, things going wrong in a million different ways. And then there was the age to come, when God would put things right and make the earth work like heaven. In the Old Testament, the concept of resurrection doesn't really appear. It makes maybe a couple of squint and you can barely see it appearances. But by the time of Jesus and Paul in the first century, the Jewish people had started to connect the dots of who their God was and what some of the implications of that might be. And they had begun to expect that in the age to come, in addition to all the other ways God would put things right, there would be a resurrection. God's people would be given new life on the other side of death to enjoy this world that God had made new. And so Paul is convinced that he has finally started to wake up from the bad dream that was the world around him. The clincher of the evidence for him is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. In some letters, Paul makes a big deal that he has actually met the risen Jesus. And th what I'm talking about here is why that was an important fact for Paul. Jesus has been raised from the dead. I've seen him. <laughs> Resurrection only happens in the age to come. Therefore, the age to come is now. Just as surely as when I feel the sheets on top and the mattress beneath. That means I'm lying in my bed. Often Paul's encouragement from this is to live as if it were true. Since the age to come is here, live like it is. Live like you've woken up instead of living like the bad dream is ongoing. 
We're beginning the second main section of Paul's letter to the Romans this week with chapters, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We're actually going to spend two weeks on these verses because I think there's a couple of interesting things going on there. But before we get to those verses for today, we need to look for a bit of background in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The age to come that I was just referring to is sometimes also called the kingdom of God. We see Jesus in the Gospels, and Mark and Luke refer often to the kingdom of God showing up, the kingdom of God being here, the kingdom of God being close at hand. He tells parables of what the kingdom of God is like. Matthew, by the way, uses kingdom of heaven uh, because of a Jewish custom of not saying the name of God, but using other words like heaven to get around it. But it's the same idea there as well. The kingdom of God is the age to come. Just instead of using a time metaphor, the age when God will make things right, it uses a more of a you know, geographic political metaphor, the place where God will make things right. Like the resurrection, Jews had particular expectations of what the kingdom of God would be like. Unlike the resurrection, the idea of the kingdom of God makes many appearances in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, Isaiah in particular, talk about the kingdom of God often and at length. There are extensive passages outlining what it will be like when God is in charge and the world will reflect their character. I've mentioned before Meredith and my old ethics professor, Glenn Stassen, but he wrote a book with David Gushy, who many of you will be familiar with from other books that Gushy has written since then, Uh, but they wrote a book on ethics. It's called Kingdom Ethics because its main thesis is that the question of how we should live as Christians is answered by looking at this concept of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The one we pray would exist on earth as it is in heaven. What is it like? What are its characteristics? Because if we know those things, then we know how to live. We live in ways that align with those characteristics. We live as if the kingdom of God were, in fact, here. This is all a very Pauline approach, as we will see. But point being, their book on ethics, Kingdom Ethics, is fantastic. It's not the easiest read. It takes a little bit of work, but it is very rewarding if you uh, do care to pick that up. It begins by laying out what this kingdom of God expectation was in the Old Testament and what the characteristics of the kingdom of God were. When the Jewish people looked forward to the kingdom of God, what were they expecting to find there? Stassen and Gushy look at the relevant passages in the Old Testament, and they find seven characteristics that show up again and again. Not in all of them in every single passage, but consistently enough, and in most of them, to make it obvious that this was part of the expectation that the prophets had, that the kingdom of God would be like these seven things. Now, there is definitely some overlap between these seven characteristics, but it's also kind of helpful to separate them out and uh, see them individually as well. But here is Stassen and Gushy's list of the seven characteristics of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament in order of how often they appear in the relevant passages. First, there is deliverance or salvation. Second, there is righteousness or justice. Third, there is peace. Fourth, joy. Fifth, God's presence with the people, often using spirit or light as metaphors for that presence. Sixth, healing, which overlaps quite a bit with salvation. And then seventh, return from exile to the promised land. So just to show you an example of what they're talking about, this is Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, 
That's a reference to the current age that we were just talking about. God brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, meaning Israel. But in the latter time, this is a reference to the age to come idea, God will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. There is number five in that verse, the light of God's presence. You have multiplied exultation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. That verse is number four, joy. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. There's number one, deliverance from enemies or salvation. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. That verse is number three, peace. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders. There's the idea of the kingdom of God. And he has named wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Great will be his authority and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. There's the kingdom idea again, but also the throne of David implies a return from exile because there is no throne of David unless the nation has returned and the kingdom has been restored. So that's number seven. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. There's number two. From this time onward and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So we see all but number six, healing in that passage. And this is typical of the passages that Stassen and Gushi look at. These same concepts keep showing up over and over again when the kingdom of God is talked about. They are what would show us that the kingdom of God is here. When the kingdom is here, we will experience deliverance, justice, peace, joy, healing, God's presence, and return from exile. Those are the things we look forward to, the things that God will bring one day. And so with all that in mind, let's turn to Romans 5. Because with that context, we see that Paul is doing something really interesting. So this is Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. The result is this. Since we have been declared in the right on the basis of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus the Messiah. Through him we have been allowed to approach by faith into this grace in which we stand and we celebrate the hope of the glory of God. That's not all. We also celebrate in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces patience, patience produces a well-formed character, and a character like that produces hope. Hope in its turn does not make us ashamed because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is all based on what the Messiah did. While we were still weak, at that very moment he died on behalf of the ungodly. It's a rare thing to find someone who will die on behalf of an upright person, though someone might, I suppose, die for a good person. But this is how God demonstrates his own love for us. The Messiah died for us while we were still sinners. How much more in that case, since we have been declared to be in the right by his blood, are we going to be saved by him from God's coming anger? When we were enemies, you see, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If that's so, how much more, having already been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And that's not all. We even celebrate in God, through our Lord Jesus the Messiah, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Unlike the Isaiah passage, Paul is speaking in the present tense, what is true now. The evidence that he sees all around and that helps him to realize what's reality and what's a dream. Let me go through these verses again and highlight a few things along the way. The result is this, Paul says, 
Since we have been declared in the right on the basis of faith, there's number two characteristic, righteousness. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. There's number three. Through him, we have been allowed to approach by faith into this grace in which we stand and we celebrate, there's number four, joy, the hope of the glory of God. And that's actually number five, God's presence. See, in the Old Testament, the phrase glory of God was a phrase that described God being present in a place. When the temple was filled with God's glory, for example, it was a sign that God was present there. When a person was overawed by God's glory, it was fear in the presence of the living God, etc. Okay, back to Romans. That's not all. We also celebrate, joy again, in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces patience. Patience produces a well-formed character and a character like that produces hope. There's number six, healing, as our suffering gets transformed into hope. Hope in its turn does not make us ashamed because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is all based on what the Messiah did. While we were still weak, at that very moment, he died on behalf of the ungodly. It's a rare thing to find someone who will die on behalf of an upright person, though someone might, I suppose, die for a good person. But this is how God demonstrates his own love for us. The Messiah died for us while we were still sinners. How much more in that case, since we have been declared to be in the right by his blood, are we going to be saved by him from God's coming anger? There's characteristic number one, salvation or deliverance. When we were enemies, you see, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If that's so, how much more, having already been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And that's not all. We even celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And this idea of reconciliation is actually number seven, return from exile. The most important part of the exile for the Jewish people was not the literal land in which they were living, although that was also important. The most important part, though, was what the exile symbolized about their relationship with their God, that it was broken, seemingly beyond repair. But Paul says that Jesus's death and resurrection have brought about reconciliation with God, a return from exile, so to speak. And so Paul, we see, hits every single one of the core markers of the kingdom of God, not as a future expectation, but as a present reality. And I don't think that's accidental. Paul is intentionally calling to mind for the Roman Christian these markers of reality. It might seem like we're still in the old age, where a million things are all wrong. It seems like a bad dream so vivid you can't wake up from it. But look again. You've been reconciled to God. You have been declared righteous and included in God's family. You've experienced peace with God and with each other. You've seen the healing and of suffering transformed into hope. You have joy. You have God's presence with you through the Holy Spirit. And if those things are true, then the kingdom is here. Not because I, Paul, told you so, but because the markers of reality are right there in front of you, like the sheets and the mattress and the lamp. Wake up. The kingdom of God is here. God has done the work at last, not because we earned it, but because in their great grace, Jesus died and rose for us when we were still far off, like the prodigal trudging home. For Paul in Romans, our experience of God, the reality of the kingdom being here, is not a nice add-on to our faith, the sprinkles on top of the ice cream sundae. It is the evidence for our faith. Paul, who was quite happy being a Pharisee, so far as we can tell, 
did not start following this Jesus because someone made a particularly compelling theological argument for him. (laughs) He did it because the risen Jesus appeared to him and it changed everything. And now he isn't telling the Romans to just trust him. Jesus is alive and God's doing all these amazing things. He's telling them to look around, see the evidence of joy and peace, healing and justice. See for yourselves that the kingdom of God is here. It matters for us too, that we look around and notice these things, that we see and experience these markers of God's kingdom because they are just as much for us, the evidence that the bad dream we sometimes feel like we are living is just that, a dream, that the reality is so much different, so much better, so much more compelling. I think this is surprisingly hard to do and not as an accident. The world tells us to live anxious, to be terrified of this law or that disease or the rising price of whatever, to wonder whether, as one headline I saw this past week put it, the world is actually falling apart or if it just seems like it. (laughs) We hear about acts of violence that happen thousands of miles away every day. It all presses in on us like a nightmare we can't shake. It takes effort and intentionality to choose to open our eyes to what Paul would tell us is reality. And I do want to be clear, there are seasons where the reality of joy, peace, healing, presence, justice, and all the rest are less apparent for us, where the bad dream just won't let go of its hold on our minds, where it's hard to notice. And this is actually one of the reasons the community of God's people is so important, because we can carry one another through the times when the nightmare seems more real and the reality seems out of reach. We can remind one another that the kingdom is here and that we can trust this God we follow together. And so the first part of the response that we had together on Sunday was to share stories. A few of the people from our community came with uh, evidence that they had seen of the kingdom being there in the form of salvation, justice, peace, joy, healing, hope, God's presence, reconciliation. And hearing those stories can be so helpful. But we do also need to practice noticing for ourselves the markers of the kingdom, seeing the evidence all around us and inside us that this new age is here, that it's time to live according to that reality, not the bad dream that seems to surround us. There are so many factors that contribute to us not noticing, so many distractions from what is real. So it takes practice to wake up. I think this goes beyond gratitude journals and mindfulness apps, although there's nothing wrong with those things and they can be helpful tools. But there's lots of practices that Christians have used through the years to do just this, to notice. One is called examine, E-X-A-M-E-N, and we used it as the second part of our response together. It's a practice that Christians have been using for hundreds of years for the sake of helping to notice what's going on. And we adapted it for our purposes. But in its original form, it's a practice that's done at the end of each day as a way of reflecting back over the day, noticing things, emotions, signs of God's presence with us, things that we might have missed the first time around. But as with all practices, it can be adapted to be for a longer or shorter time than just a day, to be more or less focused in what you're looking for. Uh, For us, what we did is to look back over the past week or so and to look for those markers of God's kingdom that could be so easy to miss or dismiss, to look for peace, joy, God's presence, healing, justice, hope, and reconciliation in our own lives or in the world around us. So I'd encourage you to do the same, to take some time in the next day or so to reflect, to look back, and to try to notice, to practice noticing those things, those things that can be the evidence that God's kingdom is here and that are so essential for those of us who want to follow Jesus into the world. 
together.